Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio, and Happy New Year to you. Well, today we kick off a brand new year with a journalist who has written what is regarded as the most detailed account of the 10-year search for Osama bin Laden. CNN national security analyst Peter Bergen will be joining us in just a moment. As it is my custom to do each week, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Bergen before he joins us. Though Bergen was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota, he was raised in London. He attended Ampleforth College in North Yorkshire before being admitted to New College at Oxford University where he earned his master's in modern history. As far as ba- as far back as 1983, Bergen traveled to Pakistan to have a, a documentary um, made about the impact that the Soviet invasion was having on Afghan refugees. And from 1985 to 90, he worked as a journalist for ABC News before landing at CNN where he's been reporting on al-Qaeda, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, counterterrorism, and homeland security issues. He's published four New York Times best-selling books and is also the recipient of the Edward Murrow Award. And two documentaries based on his books have been nominated for Emmys. It's also important to note that Bergen was responsible for producing Osama bin Laden's first television interview where bin Laden publicly declared war against the United States to a Western audience for the first time. Today, in addition to his duties as national security analyst for CNN. Mr. Bergen is the director of national security studies at the New America Foundation, a think tank in Washington, D.C. He is a fellow at Fordham University's Center on National Security and New York University's Center on Law and Security. And he has held positions um, for teaching at both Harvard and Johns Hopkins universities. It's my great pleasure to have with us today a journalist who is keen on the facts and apparently will stop at nothing to get to the bottom of them, Mr. Peter Bergen. Welcome to the program, Mr. Bergen. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to talk about your book, Manhunt, the 10-year search for bin Laden from 9-11 to Abbottabad. But before we do, there's been a lot of publicity recently about Hollywood's newest offering, Zero Dark Thirty, which is supposed to be a dramatization of the hunt and assassination of bin Laden. So I wanted to get your take on this film because there's no question the film leaves us with an impression that the torture of prisoners at Guantanamo was really the key to finding bin Laden. Yeah, and I mean, look, I mean, I'll, I'll preface my observations by saying this is a very, it's a, it's a great film. It's very well directed. It's very well written. It's very well acted. It has great sound editing. It has a great score. I mean, it's a great movie. But the filmmakers present uh, the movie uh, both with a sort of title card at the beginning and in their comments that they've made uh, that it's based on their own reporting and that it's sort of a, in some ways, a journalistic product and. So since they've set it up in that way, it can be judged as a piece of journalism or history as much as a piece of filmmaking, since they themselves have indicated that, you know, it's uh, really based on reporting. And, 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 you know, I think on that level, it it falls short because, um, and this is not really my opinion, uh, the acting director of the CIA, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, uh, who has the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee and, of course, is the uh, ranking Democrat from California on, in the Senate, um, you know, have said publicly that the film doesn't really reflect what happens. And, you know, much of what did happen in the hunt for bin Laden remains classified. And, you know, I, in my book, I try to see what was out there on the public record. I, WikiLeaks turned out to be quite a useful source because uh, some of the... Um, kind of summaries of the transcripts that people held at Guantanamo were, were, were released in the WikiLeaks sort of uh, uh, document dump. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, the film suggests that um, coercive interrogation techniques were an important part of finding bin Laden and the acting director of the CIA and Senator Dianne Feinstein, 
who's conducted a three-year investigation of this issue, um, and apparently there's a 6,000-page report that our committee has reproduced that has not been made public yet, you know, they say that that's not the case. And I, you know, I spent quite a lot of time trying to get to the bottom of this issue myself in my book, and I concluded that there was one person who was held at Guantanamo who certainly was uh, coercively interrogated, who sort of uh, did eventually give up uh, at the alias of somebody, uh, the, who the courier that led to bin Laden. Uh, but it wasn't clear to me from what was available on the public record at what point he did this. And, you know, the, the, the Senate Intelligence Committee made big investigation and has concluded that that information was not given up by somebody uh, as a result of coercive interrogation. So I, I think that sort of speaks for itself. So, And yet this film really sets you up to believe that that was the key to finding bin Laden. Would you agree? You know, uh, I've seen it twice, and um, I think audiences are going to come away. For a start, you know, it, it, it's much more interesting as a movie to show somebody being, you know, coercively interrogated than it is to show somebody going through a file, filing system and finding some, you know, arcane piece of information that leads to another piece of information. And, you know, it takes up half an hour of the first 45 minutes of the movie, these right. sort of abusive. So I, I think it, you know... Most people are going to walk away and say, hey, you know, whatever the intentions of the filmmakers, hey, this was a big part of what, how we found Bin Laden. And, you know, I think that's factually incorrect. Yeah, I have to tell you, I'm, I, I've seen the film and I was a little concerned that it gives the impression that the ends justifies the means. The torture was worth it because the information was eventually extracted. Uh, and we're using the words coercive interrogation, but what we're really talking about is torture. Is that correct? Well, one of the detainees who did give up this information, this is not my opinion, uh, but Susan Crawford, who was a federal judge appointed by Ronald Reagan, who was appointed by the George W. Bush administration to oversee the military commissions at Guantanamo, mm -hmm. she said the particular uh, detainee who did give up this information was uh, abused in such a way that he was tortured. So, you know, uh, torture is to some degree in the eye of the beholder in the sense that some people may say that keeping people awake and all that kind of thing isn't torture. I'm careful in my book to talk about coercive interrogations because no one can quibble with the fact that there were coercive, these interrogations were coercive. They were not, you know, sort of anything other than that. But I just want to say one other thing about the, about the film because, you know, the, the filmmaker's defense, uh, I think, you know, would, would be, you know, more along the lines of what we try to show was sort of a totality of the war on terror, which is a very complicated uh, set of things that happened over a decade, and we had two and a half hours. And I mean, on that basis, it's you know that there were certainly these techniques were used, but they were not at all key to finding Bin Laden. They were used, but they didn't yield that kind of information. No, actually, the the investigation indicated that it less it led to more misinformation, false information, than it did anything of any value. And I think you've also been critical of the fact that the film sidestepped the fact that our own FBI was very opposed to these te uh, interrogation techniques. Sure, and you know what is the, what is the bread and butter of the FBI? which after all has been doing this since the 1920s, is interrogations. And, you know, they and they are, knew that it led to false information and, and would not be productive. Yeah, they, you know, their objections were, you know, multi multifold. It's unethical, it's not helpful, uh, um, can lead to false information. And you can get the same and better information by, you know, treating somebody with some respect. I mean, I have you know, plenty of friends who work in the FBI and, they typically say that the most useful interrogation tool is like something like offering somebody a Diet Coke. You know? um, and in fact, you know, uh, there are very good examples uh, of people giving up very useful pieces of information uh, that we can point to that have happened since 9-11. For instance, the identity of the or sort of basically the mastermind of 9-11 was elicited in a non-coercive interrogation by an FBI agent. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, oh, but I, I, you know, if the film has had any service on this issue, it's 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 provoking a public discussion. I hope that the Senate Intelligence Committee's report, which is presently classified, you know, will it, that this will provide some leverage for at least some of it to be publicly declassified, so that we can have a more sensible conversation about all this with more of the facts at hand.
Absolutely. And we're hoping that that declassification will come sooner than later. And perhaps if there's any good that a film like this can do, maybe it'll put pressure on getting that to some early release. We have to take a short commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about our nation's ambivalent relationship with Pakistan. You're listening to the Costa Report. We all know that the wrong time to start planning is when we're under fire and there is no time to plan. But it's also true that most of us are not prepared for when we, or a family member, suddenly needs expensive nursing home care. Take your estate, for example. Whether it's small or large, how sure are you that your will is legal? Are your children poised to avoid costly probate and reap the benefits of what you want them to have? Or will they be left, like seven out of 10 families are each year, with piles of paper and no idea of what your intentions were? My name is John Lawton, and I have been helping families through their most difficult transitions in life for over three decades. Beginning in January, I'll be answering your questions about estate planning and elder care in a new segment on the Costa Report called Family Matters. We'll talk about everything from your care, your children, your pets, and your peace of mind. So join me every Friday, starting in January, right here on your favorite weekly news program, The Costa Report. You asked and we listened. The new and improved paperback edition of The Watchman's Rattle is now available in bookstores everywhere, including airports across the country. If you've been hemming and hawing about not having time to go online or pick up a copy, well, now you don't have any excuses. Find out why government gridlock, terrorism, epidemic obesity, crime on Wall Street, even problems with education and health care have an evolutionary basis to them. Because when you do, you'll never look at our problems the same way. So pick up the freshly printed paperback edition of The Watchman's Rattle. Don't wait. Do it now. Give yourself a real reason to feel optimistic. That's The Watchman's Rattle, available everywhere you are. Hi, I'm Andy, the produce manager at Ben Loman Market. This week we are featuring... Bing cherries from Chile, four ninety nine a pound. From Mexico, we have large red bell peppers, a dollar sixty nine a pound. Large green bell peppers, ninety nine cents a pound, and grape cherry tomatoes, ninety nine cents a basket. From California, we have red leaf and green leaf lettuce, a dollar seventeen each. From Honduras, we have large sweet whole cantaloupes. 49 cents a pound. Don't forget to pick up a five-pound bag of Texas Ruby Red Grapefruit. These beauties are sweet, juicy, and only $2.99 a bag. In Organics, we are featuring Washington Fuji Apples, $1.19 a pound. So come check out our great selection of fresh produce at Ben Lomond Market. Welcome to Move Time Radio, presented by the Arthritis Foundation. And we're smack dab in the middle of our dance-a-thon to fight arthritis pain. Me, I've been grooving for 10 hours straight, baby, but I'm a boogie machine. See, movement is just one of the ways to help fight osteoarthritis pain. Another is weight loss. You get rid of just one pound. That's four pounds of pressure off each knee. For more information on managing pain, visit fightarthritispain.org. Then meet me on the dance floor. This message brought to you by the Arthritis Foundation and the Ad Council. Eat, Drink, Explore Radio is your lifestyle information source. Our focus includes food, wine, craft beer, travel and tourism trends, emphasizing healthy, local, and sustainable options. We've got you covered from 8 to 10 each and every Sunday morning, live, right here on KSCO AM 1080. Eat, Drink, Explore Radio, your source for the lifestyle you love. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is author, journalist, and CNN national security analyst, Mr. Peter Bergen. And before the break, we were talking about the film Zero Dark Thirty and the impression it leaves that coercive interrogation techniques were 
perhaps the key to locating Osama bin Laden. And just to finish up on that subject, you know, Peter, you've, you've had a long love affair with documentary films and nonfiction books. So let me ask you whether you feel that dramatizations like Zero Dark Thirty do more harm than good, or, or you seem to indicate that perhaps it just brings it back to the awareness of the public so it serves some function? I think it serves yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think it's a serious, it's intended to be a serious film. These people, Cameron Bigelow and Mark Bowles, are serious people. Um, you know, I just, I think that we wouldn't be having this conversation if they just said it was a movie, uh, rather than that it was sort of based on first-hand reporting and um, and that it was sort of journalistic. And, you know, because then it, you know, it can be judged as journalism. That You know, and I mean, but, and I balance against that. You know, uh, tens of thousands of people are going to go out and buy my book over time. Uh, millions of people are going to see this movie. And so, you know, there is a... Isn't it great to be a nonfiction writer? writer. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I, I mean, you got to figure out how to put a boy wizard or a couple of starstruck uh, teenage vampires in your books, or it's just never going to make it. Indeed, indeed. Maybe my next book will style, will style the Kardashians. There you go. If you want a bestseller, I, I tell you. Uh, moving right along, uh, I, I'm hoping that maybe you can clear something up for me. As I understand it, there, there's been no evidence in the days following bin Laden's assassination that the Pakistani leaders knew or cooperated with bin Laden. And yet publicly, we state that Pakistan is a close ally of the United States, according to uh, the Congressional Research Service, Pakistan's received more than $20 billion from the U.S. since 2002. But since when do we secretly sneak into an alleged allies country to take out our most wanted enemy? I have such a hard time believing that we would have snuck into the U.K. if we discovered that bin Laden had been hiding out there. Well, you know, I mean, fair, fair point. Pakistan, of course, the relationship is a, it's a troubled one. Um, it, yes, we have given uh, billions of dollars to the Pakistanis, but, you know, truth be told, that is mostly compensation for actions the Pakistani army has taken that we've asked them to take. So, for instance, going after the Taliban in parts of Western Pakistan. And, you know, there is no evidence that anybody in Pakistani official circles knew that bin Laden was there. It's hard to prove negatives, but, you know, I talked to multiple people in the Obama White House asking them this question, and I, you know, we've recovered thousands of documents from the bin Laden compound, and if there was a smoking gun, our relations with the Pakistanis are not, you know, are, are such that, you know, we would have come out and said, look, we found a document that proves this, uh, but there isn't, and, and it's kind of common sense, uh, Rebecca. I think that, you know, bin Laden was a very paranoid guy. There was no reason for him to kind of tell anybody with, you know, unless you had a need to know about bin Laden being in this compound, you didn't know. And in fact, in the course of my reporting for my book, I was able to find out that there was there was an adult living on the bin Laden compound in Abdabad who had no idea bin Laden was living there. She was the wife of the courier, who was basically sheltering him, and the, the courier said to, to his wife, you know, there's a stranger here, do not, do not ask any questions about him, don't talk about him, and I won't be telling you who he is. And so she only found out that it was Bin Laden after, after he was killed, and she only saw this guy once in the several years that they were living on the compound together because basically he would keep, um, you know, he was very careful to sort of stay on the second or third floor of his house and only pop out very briefly for a quick walk uh, in, in, a, in a vegetable garden in the compound. So he was he was hiding from people inside his own compound. Uh, it doesn't make sense that he would be informing others uh, who didn't need to know uh, in the Pakistani government. So, so how do you feel about the fact that we go in there undercover into another country that we say is our ally? Well... You know, there was a debate in the White House, which I explain in the book, uh, about whether or not to do a joint operation with the Pakistanis. Whether or, or even inform them. Yep, give them a heads up. The question, you know, should we give them a heads up before? Should we give, give them a heads up during the event? Should we give them a heads up after? And, um, you know, the, the relations, as this whole thing was being debated, relations between U.S. and Pakistan, which have never been great, we're getting worse. Raymond Davis, a CIA contractor, killed two Pakistanis in broad daylight in a Pakistani city on January 25th. 
uh, of 2011, right as all these discussions were happening, and then he was put in jail by the Pakistanis, and there was concern, that he, you know, that he might not get out. Um, and so, you know, the whole relationship was getting worse and worse. The American drone strikes in Pakistan, you know, were going on. And the conclusion was, you know, we don't want to, we're not going to do anything with the Pakistanis on this, and we're going to inform them after the event. And you've spent a lot, a lot of time in Pakistan in uh, early on in your career, I think. I don't remember the exact dates, but you're very familiar with the Pakistani people. What, what's broken down there? Well, I think there's a lot of mistrust, and I, you know, um, Pakistan is one of the, one of those countries with one of the least favorable view of the United States. And I think the Pakistan view is that we're sort of a fair weather friend. You know, when it suits us, we use the Pakistanis for our own purposes. So, for instance, you know funneling money through the Pakistanis uh, to the Afghan rebels fighting the Soviets. And then we closed our embassy there in 1989 and sort of turned our back on the region and Pakistan and sanctioned them for that nuclear program. And uh, they're very aware of that history. And, of course, most Americans aren't. And, um, you know, now their their beefs are the CIA drone program, the, you know, unilateral attack against bin Laden on their territory, uh, the Raymond Davis affair, which I just mentioned, the CIA contractor who killed these two Pakistanis. Um, there's a whole sort of laundry list. I think, you know, 2011, when the bin Laden operation happened, was sort of the, the low point of the relationship. It's kind of getting slightly better. But well, it's, I, it's I, interesting. A, a few weeks ago, I had a chance to speak with Chuck Yeager, who's still considered a hero in Pakistan because he was the only military pilot to fly with the Pakistani Air Force when they were battling India. And he really grew to love the Pakistani people, and he wanted to understand firsthand what was happening to our relationship with them. So he requested the U.S. Embassy to clear him for a visit there, and they denied him. So he went around them and reached out to friends that he still had in the Pakistani military, and they welcomed him with open arms. And a few months ago, he went to Pakistan, and I had an opportunity to interview him, and he claims that it is the arrogance of our embassy that's the core of the issue there. Um, You've studied the situation there. What what do we need to do to get back on track with Pakistan? Because it seems to me we've got a big shortage of allies there. And if we're calling them an ally, at some point we have to start treating them like an ally, don't we? Well, you know, if I, I think, you know, first off, there are, of course, many Pakistanis who send their kids to the United States, come here on vacation, uh, who have very warm views of the United States. So it's, it's not like this is sort of unilat- you know, monolithic. And also, you know, Pakistan is a country of 180 million people, so you've got a lot of different uh, kinds of, and it's a, you know, it's a wonderful country. Um, and, um, you know, I think if, uh, I think most Pakistanis would answer the question you've just posed by saying, you know, we don't want American aid, which usually comes, you know, loaded down with lots of caveats and reporting right. requirements. We want American trade, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, Pakistan's biggest manufacturing sector is textiles and they would their textiles are uh, are taxed at a pretty high level uh, compared to other countries. And I mean, if there was one single thing that the United States could do, which is just level the playing field, it sounds like. I'm sorry, we have to take another yeah. short break. And when we come back, we'll turn our attention a little bit to the domestic front and the growing concern over guns and violence in America. You're listening to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and I'm here to tell you about a family that has been producing old-school premium wines in California for longer than I have been on the radio. They started small with only one goal, to produce limited lots that rival the best wines in the world. And they have never drifted from that goal. So this holiday, take my word for it and check out Caraccioli's premium Brut, Brut Rosé, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay. They make a welcomed gift. And if you're near their tasting room in downtown Carmel, stop by and sample the wine. The Caraccioli family has been perfecting for generations. That's Caraccioli Cellars. Don't forget that name because these are wines that you're going to be hearing a lot more about. And from the Caraccioli family to you, have a happy and safe holiday. The original Stagnero family has been in business since 1879. 
The Stagnero name stands for quality, quantity, and great service. The family's Gilda's Restaurant on the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf is still the fishing headquarters of the Santa Cruz area. It's where fishermen gather each morning for coffee and breakfast before heading out on the bay. Stop by Gilda's and say hi. Dino looks forward to meeting you at Gilda's on the center of the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf. It's out with the inside and in with the outside with some help from your friends and neighbors at Ace Hardware. Hello, Charlie Friedman here. You know, there's lots to do to keep the old home front looking good and feeling happy. Gotta paint the fence, patch the driveway, fix the drip irrigation, and fertilize the fruit trees. And that's just for starters. Now, I could head across town to that giant box store and spend an hour wandering up and down the aisles, but I won't. Instead, I'll head over to my neighborhood Ace Hardware. They're in Watsonville, Freedom, Marina, Salinas, and Gilroy. These Ace Hardware stores are locally owned by my friends Manuel and Carlos Rodriguez. We're almost always on hand to make sure everything is working right. At my neighborhood Ace, someone will meet me at the door and take me straight to the solution to my homeowner needs. That means I leave with the goods in a bag and a smile on my face. Now, when you find yourself in need of a paintbrush, or screwdriver, or fertilizer, I suggest you head to your neighborhood Ace Hardware store in Watsonville, Freedom, Marina, Salinas, or Gilroy. Think of it as your ace in the hole. Discover the difference at the Garden Company. The difference in the way you're greeted. The difference in the quality and diversity of our plants. The difference in the knowledge of our staff and their commitment to your positive shopping experience. Hi, I'm Charlie Cupman of the Garden Company Nursery and Gift Shop, a family-owned garden center since 1986. Let us help you create colorful containers for your deck, a fragrant planting for your entry, or an edible landscape for your personal harvest. You'll find everything you need, perennials, shrubs, vines, fruit trees, organic vegetables, earth-friendly products, pottery, soils, and much more. And there's our incredible gift shop with exquisite gift ideas for office parties, hostess gifts, Mother's Day, or any occasion. Discover why Good Times readers voted the Garden Company Best Nursery and Garden Supply. The Garden Company Nursery and Gift Shop, a proud member of Think Local First. 2218 Mission Street, across from Safeway, on the west side of Santa Cruz. The Garden Company Nursery and Gift Shop, a family-owned garden center since 1986. It's the Way of Love, Live! The variety show committed to bringing you positive stories and life-affirming messages. Combined with enough inspirational music and satirical comedy to make it worth everyone's while. Together we focus on the most important issues of the day by exploring informed and enlightened approaches wherever we can find them. Using serialized fiction, we bring to life great stories from the past and sci-fi possibilities of the future. Join us every Saturday, 5 to 7 p.m. for It's the Way of Love Live. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is journalist Peter Bergen. And before the break, we were talking about our ambivalent relationship with Pakistan and what America needs to do to get back on track with this important ally. Now, let's talk a little bit about matters closer to home. On the heels of the tragedy at Newton, you were one of the first to frame the gun issue as a national security problem. You pointed out that Britain has about 41 deaths from guns in 2010 compared to 10,000 in the United States. And you also state that jihadists have murdered 17 Americans since 9-11, whereas 88,000 Americans have died from gun violence from 2003 to 2010. So could you elaborate for our audience today on why you feel this is a national security issue? Yeah, well, if we, if, we, if we frame jihadist terrorism as a national security issue, and as you point out, 17 Americans have been killed by jihadist terrorists in the United States since 9-11, and yet you have 80, 88,000 Americans being killed by, um, you know, people with guns, you know, this is a, a major problem. And, you know, the other, this is a piece I wrote for CNN.com, and, the, you know, some other things I point out is you're five times more likely to be murdered in New Orleans um, most of these murders, of course, are homicides with guns, uh, than you are to be killed in the war in Afghanistan as an Afghan civilian. I mean, that, to me, that's a fairly shocking uh, statistic. I'm talking to you from Washington, D.C. Last year, you were twice as likely to be murdered in Washington, D.C. 70% of murders in the United States are homicides with guns. Uh, then you are to be killed as an Afghan civilian in the war in Afghanistan right now. So, I mean, you know, what civilized country, you know, thinks that's a reasonable situation to so be So you're in? saying it's more dangerous 
uh, in Washington, D.C. as a civilian than it is a civilian in Afghanistan where the war is going on? Yes. Um, and just to give you, uh, you know, the, uh, you know the, the, the murder rate in Washington, by the way, has, has been dropping, but it's still uh, and it's dropping quite significantly, but it's still uh, pretty high. Um, in Washington last year, there were about 100 murders, population 500,000. In Afghanistan, there were 3,000 Afghan civilians died in the war there, population 30 million. So anybody who can do the math fairly quickly can see that it's basically twice as dangerous to be living in Washington um, as it is to be an Afghan civilian in the war there. So I, I think these figures sort of speak for themselves, and that's why, you know, often gun violence is framed as a public health issue, which it certainly is. Uh, but I was saying, you know, maybe we need to think about it as a national security issue as well. And in this article, uh, you talk a little bit about the Second Amendment, and obviously any attempt to curb the Second Amendment gets very emotional and is a slippery slope. But at yeah. some point, doesn't the Constitution and its amendments have to evolve? I mean, even our founding fathers made provisions for this. So I'm not understanding what the problem is. Well, look, I, I yeah, I mean... The Second Amendment is the Second Amendment. It's not the 25th Amendment. It's very much embedded into American life, um, and it's just a fact of American life. And, uh, you know, if if the right to privacy, which is, after all, an amendment in the Constitution, is the sort of intellectual basis and, and in fact, legal basis for women's right to have an abortion, you know, liberals also have to kind of think about... Um, you know, they have to be careful about the way that they interpret whatever the original intent of the founders was, because, of course, you know, we've moved on as a society. So, you know, I but clearly, you know, people do not need assault rifles to hunt deer and they don't need assault rifles to protect themselves in their homes. These, you know, and, and so, I mean, some some common sense needs to be applied to all this. But there seems to be a resistance to any common sense. I mean, there are people, there are, there are extremists that think that you ought to be able to own a tank or a rocket launcher. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't count myself. You know, I grew up in London. I mean, murders were almost unheard of. Um, and uh, murders are still, I mean, you know, very, very rare events. In Why is that? Well, um, it, you know, there are fewer guns. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's not that. It's of course, you know, United States is relatively speaking a more violent society. I mean, there are murders in, in, in of course, in the UK. Um, um, many of them are accomplished without guns, but guns, of course, are a much more better way to kill somebody than, let's say, you know, a knife. And, and the fact that we have these more and more powerful weapons allows people to kill more people. I mean, you know, it's, a, it's common sense, but you know. Getting some kind of, you know, uh, getting sort of a traction on this issue is, is not going to be easy. Let's see what Vice President Biden is in charge of the effort to, for the administration to kind of come forward with some proposals and let's see how they do. In all fairness, you point out in your article that countries such as Norway, which have very strict gun control laws and enforcement, uh, still have problems with it. You point out this Anders Breivik was able to get a semi-automatic weapon and murder, murdered dozens of civilians. So yes. well, even even in these countries, there are problems. Of course. That's not an argument for inaction. I mean, I was in Oslo relatively recently where, you know, you set off a bomb Brevik. I mean, the re one of the reasons this was such a traumatic event in, in Norway is that, that these kinds of events virtually never happen. And I think the number of murders in the number of gun murders in Norway in any given year, you can count literally count on one hand. Um, uh, obviously, the population is small. I think it's about four million. But the point is, is that this level of violence associated with guns is quite unusual. You know, we're, our murder rate in the United States is much looks much more like the murder rate of countries that we wouldn't necessarily want to be part of, you know, on the same list as Mexico, Salvador, Guatemala. We're not as, as bad as any of those countries right now, but um, we're certainly, you know, in terms of the sort of more advanced industrialized countries, um, you know, we'd want to be in, on the list with places like the UK and, 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 and Norway, surely. 
um, rather than on a list that looks that has other people who have you know severe problems with gun violence. It's very interesting that there are so many factors that could be correlated. On the one hand, there being more guns in a particular society and more violence. But on the other hand, you you can look at larger populations uh, or the growth of populations and an increase in violence as well. Uh, In areas where the population has grown very, very quickly, uh, you find that there tends to be greater violence as well. So it's really hard to get a one-to-one correlation on a complex problem like this, isn't there? Isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But I think, you know, the, the, the gun violence in the United States and the amount of people, the amount of guns in circulation, I mean, this is unusual compared to most other, let's say, comparable countries. One of the things that I found very revealing as a sociobiologist is that in virtually every mass murder case, whether it's in Norway or Newton, there's one common denominator in that the shooter has decided that they no longer want to live, that they make the decision to end their lives first long before they went looking for a weapon. Yeah, that's a very interesting observation. And and I and and for me, I think we have to look at that as a very important clue because we have so many people going on antidepressants right now, and who ha- no longer have one of nature's fundamental drives. They don't have the drive to live. In nature, creatures fight to survive, and we've got now massive numbers of people who are deciding that they don't want to live. And once you decide you don't want to live, well, you know, they're taking out lots of people as they go. And I I had somebody write to me an email that said when John Wilkes Booth assassinated Lincoln, he did. It didn't even occur to him that he would uh, take out the whole theater, shoot the theater up. He ran. He ran to protect his life and, and to try to save himself. And that isn't happening anymore. These people are going in and mass murdering. And then at, with the conclusion being they're going to murder themselves. And I think that that uh, is a really big secret to something that's going on. It's a big clue as to something that's going on with these mass murders. Now, we have to take our last break. And when we come back, we're going to find out what you're working on next and talk a little bit more about your book, Manhunt. You're listening to The Costa Report. Just about everyone knows that fruits and vegetables are good for our health, but not everyone knows how to build a healthier plate. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, a cookbook author and culinary expert. For each meal, nutrition experts recommend filling half of your plate with fruits and veggies. Whether it's fresh berries with your breakfast cereal, a wrap filled with your favorite roasted vegetables for lunch, or a medley of crunchy veggies for a pre-dinner nibble, Dole provides the freshest and highest quality produce available. When you load up on all the nutritional good stuff, you give your meal an instant boost of color, flavor, and texture, plus vitamins and minerals and fiber. Everything your body needs to succeed. For nutritional inspiration and to learn more about Dole's fresh, whole, and cut vegetables and a full line of berries, visit Dole.com. With Dole as your partner in health, the possibilities are endless. Visit Dole.com. Hi, I'm Judy Profetta, owner, broker, and active real estate agent of Alon Pinnell Realtors, a locally owned real estate company. We've operated on the peninsula for over 16 years, currently located on the corner of Ocean and Dolores and Unipero between 5th and 6th in downtown Carmel. We serve the Monterey Peninsula, focusing on Carmel, Pebble Beach, and the Carmel Valley. Our firm of about 50 agents represents everything from Carmel Cottages to Pebble Beach Estates and oceanfront properties to Valley Vineyards. We are actually known for our vast inventory of fine properties. Drop by and see us, or better yet, visit our website at apr-carmel.com. That's apr-carmel.com. Or you can give us a call at 831 622 1040 
and make sure you tell them Judy sent me. Howdy, folks. My name is Mickey Phelps, and I'm the executive chef of Crown Cafe Deli. It's getting cold outside, so why don't you stop by for a nice warm cup of soup or a nice winter fresh salad? Wow, let me tell you, this winter fresh salad has spring mix, cranberries, blue cheese, and glazed pecans. This is sure to satisfy your needs. Also, don't forget that we have an amazing selection of hot and cold sandwiches. For example, the Brit, which is a roast beef and horseradish. We also offer every sandwich on gluten-free bread. And if you're looking for a nice dinner to go, stop by and get the tri-tip dinner with mashed potatoes and veggies. Crown Cafe is located at the Brown Ranch Marketplace in Capitola, between Bed Bath & Beyond and Trader Joe's. For more information, please call 831-475-5992 or on the web at crowncafecatering.com. Given what's going on in the world, it's more important than ever to save money. Hello, I'm Scott Bedell from Bedell Nelson Harvard Insurance, your allied agent in Santa Cruz. Bedell Nelson can save you money by packaging your home and auto coverage with Allied. We can even help you save on your vacation rental with Foremost Insurance Group. Give us a call at 426-3700 and ask for a free, no-obligation quote. We are Bedell Nelson Harbor Insurance, and we can save you money because Allied and Nationwide are on your side. 426-3700. Michael Olson's third law of the food chain, cheap food isn't. They make food cheap by taking the food out of it and by making taxpayers subsidize its costs. Thus, the cheap food they promise is really the expensive food they deliver. To find true value, tune in KSEO Saturday at 9 a.m. as the Food Chain Radio Show tracks down the real deal of food. If you have a comment about the third law of the food chain, tell me, Michael Olson, all about it at MetroFarm.com. Now, see you all on KSEO Saturday at 9 a.m. for some What's Eating What Radio on the Food Chain. What day was that? Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is author and CNN national security analyst Peter Bergen. Before the break, we were discussing the relationship between guns and violence in our own country and the new breed of mass murderer that appears to be emerging. So as we look forward to 2013, what's on your radar? Because according to your book, Manhunt, it doesn't sound like we're going to hear much more about al-Qaeda. Is that right? Yeah, well, my, you know, uh, I'm actually contemplating writing a, 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 another uh, final sort of history of al-Qaeda that would, uh, having worked on the subject for 20 years and accumulated a lot of documents, and uh, I wanted to do one more sort of uh, overview of, of the whole phenomenon. But, you know, it will it'll be a, sort of an obituary because, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda lost the war of ideas in the Muslim world. Um, what they were offering was really, uh, you know, a violence and a pretty negative vision. They had, Bin Laden never had any real answers to the, the real economic and political problems that face so much of, let's say, the Arab world. Um, and, you know, Al-Qaeda uh, made a world of enemies. It, it, uh, it was defined by what it was against. Um, its founder and leader died uh, in Pakistan, uh, Osama bin Laden. His replacement is uh, you know, not going to be able to re resuscitate this organization, which is in deep trouble. And sure, we're going to see flickers of jihadist terrorism in places like Benghazi, but this is not the resuscitation of the organization that attacked us on 9-11, killed you know, 3,000 mostly Americans in the course of the morning. This is, you know, jihadist terrorism has been around in one form or another, um, since arguably the assassins who were operating in the 12th century in, you know, what's Iran and Syria now. So, you know, it, it, jihadist terrorism is not going to disappear completely. Um, but, uh, you know, the ability of an organization like al-Qaeda to inflict some kind of massive attack on the United States, it, it's over, basically. Well, what was bin Laden and al-Qaeda's view of uh, the United States? Was it that we were the aggressors, that we are the imperialists, and therefore America is an enemy that must be stopped. I mean, I, I could never get anyone to tell me exactly what is the pro, what is the focus on America. Well, um, you know, I interviewed with uh, with uh, a group from CNN. We interviewed uh, Bin Laden in '97, and what he said to us then, in answer to the question you just posed. He's been pretty consistent about it. At the time, he, you know, he's basically, I'm declaring war on the United States because it's foreign policy in the Middle East. And at the time, 
his his focus was American support for Israel, U.S. support for the Saudi royal family, for the Mubarak regime in Egypt, U.S. support for sanctions then in place on Iraq. And it was sort of a laundry list of, uh, yeah, a kind of overly intrusive American foreign policy in the Middle East. But there were other countries supporting those countries as well. So why the focus on the United States specifically? You know, Bin Laden had a theory, which is, um, and it, it, would, it turned out to be a very dumb one, which was if we attack the United States, um, the regimes which rely on it for support, like the Saudis and the Egypt, and Egypt will eventually collapse. I mean, he basically thought the United States was like the former Soviet Union, the paper tiger, a couple of attacks, it would sort of withdraw from the Muslim and uh, middle world in the Middle East. Um, you know, and, and it was a sort of stupid theory because we were attacked on 9-11, and as a result of which the United States is engaged in the Middle East much more profoundly than it was, it has been in any time in its history. We have, we invaded, uh, occupied Afghanistan, then Iraq. We have massive bases in Kuwait and Qatar and Bahrain and other places. And we're very much, you know, engaged in the Middle East. So his theory didn't work out. Um, 9-11 also turned out to be something of a kamikaze attack for the organization. It was sort of their Pearl Harbor tactical victory that led to their strategic defeat. It, it actually backfired. I mean, it became yeah. something that consolidated everyone. Yeah. So, uh, and, and speaking of Benghazi, we certainly aren't out of the woods when it comes to what went wrong there at the embassy. So I can't let you go today without asking you about what, if anything, we're likely to find. Uh, we're, are we going to find Al-Qaeda uh, was staging part of this, or are we going to find that it's a, the beginning of a new terrorist group? Well, I think what we're going to find is a group called Ansar al-Sharia, which is a local group that behaves in an al-Qaeda-like manner. And in fact, you know, the interesting thing about the attack, Rebecca, of course, is that uh, the local residents of Benghazi burned down the local, you know, the, the building in which Ansar al-Sharia was, was located the day after the attack on the, uh, uh, you know, American consulate, because generally speaking, the United States is quite popular in Benghazi. And Chris Stevens, the U.S. ambassador, was sort of a hero there. So, um, you know, there are going to be groups that work in an al-Qaeda-like manner um, and, and take advantage of the chaos of places like Libya, and that's what we saw in Benghazi. But this, is, this, this does not equate to some kind of resurgence of al-Qaeda. After all, attacking a lightly defended building, which isn't even a consulate, it's really just a building that, you know, the United States had kind of deployed a few people into, uh, if you have a mob of, you know, 100, 120 people attacking it, um, you know, it's it's not that difficult. Um, you know, attacking a, it's very different from, say, attacking a U.S. embassy, um, which is now, you know, very, very difficult in, in most countries in the world. So, you know, we're going to see some of these things. It's, it's not going to go away entirely. But as, a, as an overall point, I mean, there are just fewer and fewer people who think that al-Qaeda has the answer to the problems that beset them. It's interesting. I, I lived inside an embassy compound in Laos. My father worked for the CIA, and during the Vietnam War, we were illegally, the United States was illegally in Laos and Cambodia and other countries, which journalists and uh, people in politics know about, but still the American public still doesn't know very much about Laos, other than uh, fictionalized movies, a little bit like this latest movie that's come out. But boy, if somebody wanted to attack the embassy, it would have been uh, pretty simple to do. Uh, we didn't have any security at all. We had a couple of uh, fellows that stood at a, in a guard shack at the entrance, I think, with a couple of automatic weapons, and that was about it. Um, we do know that uh, what happened in Benghazi was not this spontaneous outburst, but looks now more and more to be something that was a long-brewing threat, one that the civilians and the embassy personnel were aware of. And we have lots of long-standing threats throughout the Middle East, Africa, and basically everywhere. Uh, aren't we likely to find that these are just unfortunate byproducts of a more volatile and precarious environment for U.S. diplomacy? Sure. I mean, I mean, I think I think it's been true. Uh, you know, it, uh, attacks on U.S. embassies, consulates, diplomatic personnel have been a feature of uh, that. They're not, they didn't start with Benghazi. I mean, uh, you know, just think about the attacks in Africa in, in, in 98 by Al Qaeda or. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, it, it is a feature. I mean, it, you know, 
and and you know the State Department three people resigned as a result of the report that came out and Hillary Clinton very publicly said I take full responsibility and I mean certainly there's been I think the fact that there's been a public discussion about the failures that it happened is a good thing uh, but you know what would be a bad thing is if the kind of solution was that all diplomats in any country in the world where there's any anti-American you know kind of feeling which after all would be quite a few countries had to live in sort of essentially, you know, armored vehicles and, and in lockdown uh, inside the embassy because, you know... Would make it impossible for them to do their job. Yeah, and Chris Stevens, who was the U.S. ambassador in Libya, I mean, he was precisely the opposite of that. He spoke Arabic, he was out there, and he was aware of the, you know, he understood this was a risky environment and, you know, that, you know, it's not a job. I mean, if you want to... There are other lines of business to go into. I mean, journalists face some of the same problems in these countries, and uh, it's, it's, there's always a tension between getting, you know, doing your job and also being 100% security is unlikely to you know, produce very good results if you're either a diplomat or, or a journalist. And Absolutely. That's life. So before we let you go now, where can listeners today get hands on uh, your book, Manhunt? Because for those who are interested in the real story of our search for Osama bin Laden, rather than this glamorized movie, I'd really like them to go out and get a copy because it is a page turner. You did a fabulous job. Well, thank you, Rebecca. Uh, It's, well, you know, I mean, uh, hopefully your local bookshop and or Amazon Terrific. And how can they stay in touch with you? Do you have a website? I do, yeah. It's peterbergen.com. Terrific. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have today. But before I say goodbye, um, let me thank you for your continued coverage and also for being a vigorous pursuer of the facts behind the headlines. I've very much enjoyed your coverage. And again, your book is a page turner and a wonderfully written uh, piece of literature. I hope everyone will go out and get a copy. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you very much. If your station is leaving us after the first hour, our guest next week is the former director of policy planning for the U.S. State Department under President George W. Bush and Middle East coordinator for President Clinton, Mr. Dennis Ross. And he'll be with us to talk about growing tensions with Iran and what must be done to discourage further nuclear threats. So don't miss Dennis Ross next week, same time, same station on your favorite weekly news program. Now stay tuned for the second hour of the Costa Report where we take your calls. Hi, I'm Judy Profeta, owner, broker, and active real estate agent of Alon Pinnell Realtors, a locally owned real estate company. We've operated on the peninsula for over 16 years, currently located on the corner of Ocean and Dolores and Unipero between 5th and 6th in downtown Carmel. We serve the Monterey Peninsula, focusing on Carmel, Pebble Beach, and the Carmel Valley. Our firm of about 50 agents represents everything from Carmel Cottages to Pebble Beach Estates and oceanfront properties to Valley Vineyards. We are actually known for our vast inventory of fine properties. Drop by and see us, or better yet, visit our website at apr-carmel.com. That's apr-carmel.com. Or you can give us a call at 831 622-1040 and make sure you tell them Judy sent me. Hey mom, why is the sky blue? Why don't animals talk? Why do dogs have wet noses? Why is an 11 pronounced 21? Kids ask a lot of questions. Why do I have a belly button? But you don't have to know every answer. Why is the ocean salty? Because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Why are there 50 states? There are thousands of children in foster care who don't need every question answered. Why is pizza round? They just need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network.